You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning, everybody. As Elise said, my name is Bob Carvella. I serve as one of the elders here at Liberty Church, also serve part-time as one of the pastors, and it's my pleasure to be another person to welcome you to our time together today. And it's great to be back in this place after not being here last Sunday. Uh, for those of you who were able to join us, we gathered at Covenant Christian Academy uh, with our friends from Community Free Church, as well as with our friends at the new Midtown Community Church as we celebrated, worshiped God together and celebrated um, their launch, they're having their first worship service actually this morning. So there was something like 650 or so people uh, gathered there to worship God and to celebrate the good things that uh, he has done uh, in uh, doing so many things so that Midtown Community Church uh, could become a reality. So I don't know about you, if you were there, it was probably Tuesday or Wednesday before it felt like my feet hit the ground again. It was just a, a wonderful time together. So the theme we'll be developing today is defiance. Defiance is hardwired into the psyche of our country. We were born as a nation out of an act of defiance. It's in our DNA, and acts of defiance, whether it's in this country or anywhere in the world, tend to capture our imagination, be it Rosa Parks refusing to go to the back of the bus, or the tank man who stood in front of a column of tanks, bringing it to a halt during the 1989 uprising in Tiananmen Square. You can scan history books and see any number of acts of defiance recorded and preserved for posterity. As we continue through our series through the life of Moses, we'll be looking this morning at three acts of defiance, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 5, which if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, can be found on page 48. Actually, this morning, we'll be looking at chapters 5, 6, and the first 13 verses of chapter 7. So I should have you up and out of here by sometime Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Before we begin, let's take some time to pray together for our time as we look at God's Word. And also, let's remember to pray for our brothers and sisters at Midtown Community Church as they gather together right now for the very first time. Let's pray. Lord, guide us in this moment as we look towards your word. May your spirit do its work to grant us understanding, and may your word accomplish its work in drawing us closer to you and to make us more like Jesus. And we also pray that you would be with our brothers and sisters at Midtown Community Church as they worship you this morning. Be with Ben Bechtel and Greg Kabachian and all those who are gathered there. May they and may we worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. For the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this theme of defiance, we're going to be looking at it from three perspectives the defiance of unbelief, the defiance of disbelief, and the defiance of belief. Unbelief, disbelief, and belief. 
So first, the defiance of unbelief. Follow along, if you will, as I read from God's Word, Exodus 5, verses 1 through 9. It starts afterward. Let me stop there. So in the end of chapter 4, God has met with Moses and Aaron. He's told Moses and Aaron everything that he's about to do. And Moses and Aaron go and tell the people exactly what God told them. And it says that the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their infliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So that's the context that leads us to chapter 5. So afterward, after that, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I did not know the Lord, I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they, Moses and Aaron, said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here are Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh. They have an audience with the great and powerful Pharaoh, probably the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And this Pharaoh was not at all interested in what Moses and Aaron had to say. Look at verse 2. It's probably the most important verse in the chapter. But Pharaoh said in response to Moses and Aaron and their demand that he let the people go, Who is the Lord? See, Lord, there in those small capital letters in your Bible, when you see that in the Bible, that represents Yahweh, the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the great I am who I am, the self-revealed name of God himself that he shared with Moses. And now Pharaoh is saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? With that question, Pharaoh revealed more of his heart than he realized. Throughout the next 10 chapters, we will see God go to great lengths to make sure that Pharaoh's question is answered. Pharaoh will know who the Lord is. By the time the Israelites leave Egypt, Pharaoh will have unmistakably encountered the God who makes himself known. Who is the Lord? 
That is the central question of the whole Exodus narrative. Probably the central question in the entire book of Exodus. Wasn't that what Moses was just asking in the wilderness of Midian as he stood before the burning bush? Who are you? What's your name? Who should I say that you are that sent me? And now Pharaoh asks a very similar question. Who is the Lord? That question is rooted in the original sin of Adam and Eve when the serpent challenged the truthfulness and authority of God. Did God really say? It's a question that weaves its way throughout Scripture. We hear it in the voices of the disciples after Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. Who is this? And when Saul was struck down and blinded by the Lord on the way to Damascus, who are you? Maybe you're tempted to believe that the answer to our most pressing problem is just right around the corner. That if only we could see the triumph or the defeat of MAGA politics or progressive ideology. Or if medical science could finally find a cure for whatever ailment is most pressing at the moment. If interest rates would come down, if stock prices would go up, if, if, if. I'll leave it to you to decide which one of those problems is most important and maybe what the solutions would be. But here's what we know from the Bible. Whatever you make of those problems and whatever you make of the proposed solutions, there is one true living God. And the central problem of our day and the central problem of all time is that we do not know him and we do not worship him. We, like Pharaoh, ask the question, who is the Lord? Moses and Aaron try to explain, look, Pharaoh, you don't understand. The God of the Hebrews met with us. You may not know him, Pharaoh, but we do. He met with us, which means by implication, he's on our side. And he wants us to go to worship him for three days. Just a quick aside, why did Moses ask for three days when what they really wanted was to leave Egypt altogether? There's evidence in ancient literature that indicates that Egyptian slaves were sometimes given time off to worship their gods. So this was not necessarily an unheard of request. Moses was, in a sense, asking for a holiday weekend. But probably a better explanation is that God was testing Pharaoh. Let's just start with three days, and we'll go from there. But will you give my people three days to go and worship me? And Pharaoh says, no, I don't know this God of yours. Who is he? Why should I listen to him? And here in Pharaoh, we see the defiance of unbelief. Pharaoh was defying a God that he didn't know and didn't believe in. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Maybe some of you this morning are asking that same question. Who is the Lord? Perhaps you're asking because you've rejected him. Maybe you're asking because your life seems really good and you don't see why you would need the God of the Bible in your life. Psalm 1 tells us that there are basically two and only two groups of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked. In the relativistic times that we live in, 
That sounds pretty harsh, but that's what the Bible teaches. And Psalm 1 concludes with these words, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the fact of the matter is that since Adam and Eve, all of us are born wicked. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. But God gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly obey the law on our behalf and to take our sins to the cross, to pay the full penalty for our unrighteousness so that all who believe in Him would be granted His righteousness. If you're here this morning who is asking that question, who is the Lord? Whether in a genuine search for an answer or in outright defiance, let me tell you that in either case, welcome. God is pleased with your curiosity, and He's not put off by your skepticism. We are pleased with your curiosity. We are not put off by your skepticism. In fact, if that describes you, I'd like to offer you an invitation. You might even consider it a challenge, but an invitation. So today is October 1st, and basically six months from now, March 31st, is Easter Sunday. And so my invitation to you who may be defiant or skeptical or indifferent is this. Come join us here at Liberty Church every Sunday between now and Easter. Through the remainder of our Exodus series, you'll see God at work in the life of Moses to bring the people out of Israel, out of their slavery, bring the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. A picture of Jesus freeing us from the bondage of sin and death. We'll then enter the season of Advent, four Sundays that culminate in the celebration of the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. In January, we'll again observe a month of mercy and justice when we consider the implications of the gospel and some of the real issues of our day. Shortly after that, we'll enter Lent, the 40-day period that leads to Good Friday when we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and Easter Sunday when we celebrate his resurrection and his victory over sin and death. Counting today, it's 27 Sundays. Put your defiant unbelief up against the God of heaven and earth and the salvation that is available only through Jesus Christ. In the scope of your life, what are 27 Sunday mornings? Maybe nothing. Then again, maybe everything. So that is the defiance of unbelief. Next, the defiance of disbelief. Follow along with me as I pick up our story here in Exodus, starting at verse 22 of chapter 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Once again, the word of the Lord. So after Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh, and after the results of that, Moses complains to God that not only has God not delivered his people, but things have actually gotten worse. And God responds with beautiful words that he tells Moses to share with the people Beautiful words that speak of God's great plan of redemption. First, God looks to the past and says to Moses, let me tell you four things that I've already done. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land that they lived in as sojourners. I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And then God looks to the future and says, Moses, let me tell you seven things that I'm going to do. Here's seven promises of redemption that you can share with my people. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to you. I will give it to you for a possession. He's piling up promise after promise after promise, seven of them. I'll take you to be my people. I will free you from the yoke of slavery, and I'll give you the land that I promised you. And it's not just you'll be in the land. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were in the promised land, but they weren't landowners. They were only sojourners. But God is saying to the people of Israel, I'm going to give the land to you. It's going to be yours. They hadn't ever owned anything except for a small field and a little cave. If you remember back in Genesis 22, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had died. And Abraham bartered with Ephron the Hittite, to buy a field that contained a cave so that he could bury her. And after a rather odd give and take between Abraham and Ephron, uh, they worked out a deal, and Abraham bought this field and this cave in Machpelah, and that's where he buried Sarah. So what? Why would the Bible take a whole chapter to talk about this story? Here's why. 
It signified their faith in the promise. We're going to buy a little field here and a cave, a little burial site, because we believe God's promise that one day this whole land, as far as we can see, will be ours. That's all they ever owned, a small field and a little cave. But God had made a promise, and now God was telling Moses that it's the time had come for God to make good on that promise. The day Abraham's heirs had waited for and longed for had finally come. And so Moses goes, and he tells the people all of these promises, four things that God had already done, seven promises of what God is about to do with them, promises of redemption, of liberating grace, of freedom from slavery, of a new land that would be their possession, and he would be with them to be their God and to be his people, and he, they would be his people. They must have been overjoyed, right? The day had finally come. Not so much. They did not listen to Moses. Why? It says that they did not believe because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. As one commentator put it, the I wills of salvation led to a defiant I won't from God's people. I will, I will, I will, says the Lord. I won't believe you, God's people respond. They could not hear the promises of God because of their pain. They could not see through their suffering. You could translate the Hebrew literally. They did not listen because of the shortness of wind or the shortness of spirit. They're panting. They're out of breath. The burdens of Pharaoh had knocked the wind out of them. And here we see the defiance of disbelief. It's a defiance brought on by exhaustion. I'm sure that describes some of you this morning. Defiance brought on by exhaustion. You're too hurt to hear, and you're too burdened to believe. It's all too human for us to turn the I wills of God's salvation into the I won'ts of defiant disbelief. You know God in your head. You have sound theology. You've studied the Bible for a long time. You know that God is strong and powerful and mighty and sovereign. But in this moment, you're struggling to believe and to know that he is strong and powerful and mighty and sovereign for you, his child. You're struggling to know him, or at least in this moment, you're struggling to experience him as your maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. But friend, I'd like you to think of these seven promises that God made to the Israelites and think of how much greater are the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. To the Israelites, God says, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Jesus says to us, I will make your yoke easy and your burden light. To the Israelite, God says, I will deliver you from slavery to the Egyptians. In Hebrews 2.15, we read that Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To the Israelites, God promised, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Jesus says, I will redeem you from the power and the penalty of sin by stretching out my arms on the cross, 
because I give my life as a ransom for sinners. To the Israelite, God says, I will take you to be my people, Israel. In 1 Peter 2, God tells us, once you were not a people, but now in Christ, you are the people of God. To the Israelites, God says, I will be your God. In 2 Corinthians 6, we read that because of Christ, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. To the Israelites, God promised, I will bring you into the land that I promised to give you. Jesus says, I will go and prepare a place for you and come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. To Israel, God says, I will give you the land as a possession. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, I will give you your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Abraham knew the Lord as a promise maker. Moses knew him as a promise keeper. But we know the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. We know the one who calls to all who would listen, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Moses had much more good news coming than he could ever imagine. Friends, you and I have much more good news coming than we could ever imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no tongue can recite the good things that God has for those who love him. He remembered his covenant in Exodus. He remembered his covenant on that silent, holy night. He remembered his covenant on that resurrection morning. He will remember his covenant to you. Every will, I will of divine promise ends up as an I did of gospel deliverance. God has not forgotten who you are. Let us not forget who he is. So we've seen the defiance of unbelief. We've seen the defiance of disbelief. Now let's briefly look at the defiance of belief. Turn to chapter 6, starting at verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. So this is a really pivotal, dramatic moment. Moses had gone to Pharaoh, and he was humiliated. Pharaoh retaliated by making the work harder for the Israelites and made them gather the straw to make bricks rather than providing the straw as he did in the past. But they still had to make the same number of bricks. The people have turned against Moses, blaming him for making their lives worse. And now God's meeting with Moses and basically giving him his talking points for round two with Pharaoh. And Moses is basically saying, you want me to go back 
Look what happened the first time. And God and Moses are having this discussion, and the drama is building, and we get a genealogy? It's as if we're watching a show on television, and right at the most dramatic high point, we break for a commercial from Ancestry.com. What is going on here? Why would Moses, inspired by the Spirit, put this genealogy right in the middle of this section? Here's why. The genealogy is meant to provide an answer to Moses' protests. Moses says to the Lord, look, I was almost killed once for having an uncircumcised child. That was back in chapter 4. Before we go down that road again, maybe we should just call this quits. Because my lips, they're uncircumcised too. Which means I'm not very good at speaking. I'm not very refined. God, I'm just not the guy. But God wasn't convinced. When Moses says, let's call it quits, this genealogy says, wait a minute. Let's think about who you are and where you came from. And so through this genealogy, God's remind, God reminds Moses and assures the people that God did not pick the wrong person for the job. Moses was the right man because of where he was from. He was a descendant of Levi, the line whom God would designate to be the priests of God's people, those who served as mediators between the people and God. Of course, at this moment in Genesis 6, neither Moses nor the people were aware of any of this. The Levitical priesthood had not been established yet. But Moses, as he writes this several years, many years later, recounts this genealogy here because God is about to use Moses to turn Pharaoh and Egypt and all of history upside down. Let's pick things up again in Genesis 7, starting at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So despite Moses' protests, God says to Moses, go. And in fact, 
God says to Moses that by the time God's plan is finished playing out, Pharaoh will think that Moses is God. And so Moses goes and gives Pharaoh a glimpse of the power that will be unleashed on Egypt in the days to come. Some people have been anxious to find a natural explanation for what we read here. Even today, you can find people who are snake charmers or snake handlers. They know how to push just the right spot on the back of a snake, and it goes. Uh, and then the snake kind of goes into some sort of living rigor mortis and stiffen up. When you throw it down, uh, it might look like a rod, but then you can pick it back up again and press that same spot, and it becomes a snake again. We actually found a snake in our backyard yesterday. I was wondering if God was giving me a sermon illustration to try out. (laughs) I did not try that. So uh, I suppose it could be some sort of trick like that or skill, Uh, but there's nothing in the text that suggests that we're having some sort of animal trick. In fact, it's explicitly positioned and said that it's a miracle, both for Moses and for the magicians. The magicians do it by their secret arts, dark magic. Satan's power is real. It's not absolute, but it is real. So Aaron throws down his staff, and it becomes a snake. And Pharaoh brings in his wise men and sorcerers. We don't know how many, but more than one. And their staffs turn into snakes. Pharaoh says, you have snakes, we have snakes, everybody has snakes. Why should I believe you? And that's why it's so important that it says at the end, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Let's just talk about the the significance of the snake and the staff for a moment. It was very common for pharaohs to wear a crown with a serpent or a snake on it. They believed the serpent was a symbol of their divine power. And as for the staff, it represented pharaoh's authority. And what we see here in living color is God's power over nature, Pharaoh, and Egypt. The snake, the symbol of Pharaoh's power, and the staff in his hand symbolizing his authority were swallowed up. We'll run into that same word, swallowed, again in Exodus 15, 12, when it says that Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up by the Red Sea. So this episode in chapter 7 It's like a preview of a coming attraction. We're getting ready for much bigger things to come that will demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt the Lord is God and Pharaoh is not. So after this second encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, what changed? Well, on the surface, nothing. Pharaoh's heart grew harder. There's nothing to suggest that the people's workload eased up any. There's no indication that the people's attitude toward Moses changed. But one thing did change, and that's Moses. And in Moses, for the rest of his time in Egypt, we see the defiance of belief. Over the next five chapters, God sends Moses in to appear before Pharaoh ten times. And each time, Moses goes without hesitation, without protest, without delay. Never again in his encounters with Pharaoh did Moses point to his limitations and fears. Never again did he look at the lack of results as an indication that the plan must be wrong. 
Never again when he faced down the king of Egypt did he complain to God that he was not the right man. Defiant belief takes our eyes off of ourselves and off of our shortcomings and limitations and fixes them on God, the high king, the only true king of heaven and earth. And we, on this side of the cross, are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfect pioneer of our faith. And when we do, we open ourselves to the possibility that God will do things in and through us that we would never imagine. It's defiant belief that would cause our dear sister, Dana Sherwood, to leave family and friends, a job where she excelled, and a church where she was deeply loved. To go halfway around the world, to live with people she never met, to work with people she does not know, all because the gospel of Jesus Christ compelled her to go. And it's defiant belief that would lead 55 people to leave our church and community-free church, churches where they were known and loved and served and were needed, to plant a church in Midtown Harrisburg, to worship and praise God, to tell of the wonderful grace of Jesus, and to see lives transformed, even by God's grace to see Midtown Harrisburg transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11.27, we read that Moses, this Moses, who has been full of fear and doubt, was not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And centuries later, the one who was invisible to Moses became visible, taking the form of a servant. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he is now and forevermore highly exalted, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Someday, Pharaoh will bow to Jesus. Egypt will bow. The people of Israel will bow. Moses and Aaron will bow. Everybody in this room will bow before Jesus. For some, it will be a day of joyful celebration. For others, it will be be a day of ultimate, eternal defeat. But make no mistake, every knee shall bow. Ultimately, the question isn't really whether or not you're going to be defiant. We're all defiant. It's simply, how will you be defiant today? Will you be defiant in your unbelief? It only leads to destruction. Will you be defiant in your disbelief? It only leads to despair. So let us, in the face of whatever circumstances we face and whatever shortcomings we see within us, let us defiantly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the one true King. Let us pray. Lord, forgive our defiance of unbelief. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus have areas of our life where we just refuse to believe that you can change.
Forgive us and change us, Lord. Help those of us who find ourselves out of breath this morning, weighed down to the breaking point with hard things going on in our lives. Restore us, revive us, give us the strength and the courage to believe. Do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.